Coming up in this episode. Rising tensions between North Korea and the U.S. over North Korea's nuclear program and its missile program. And while it might seem logical to think that North Korea's weapons programs are designed to preserve the country, the reality is something else. The Kim family regime is simply concerned about its own survival. The head of a U.S.-based organization fighting for human rights in North Korea says the evidence is clear. If you look at other cases around the world, the survival of the state is generally seen as more important than the survival of the regime. But in North Korea, the Kim family regime places its own survival above everything else. The Trump administration is leaning hard against North Korea with President Trump telling Kim Jong-un to behave, something a top former U.S. intelligence official says is likely to be perceived as a threat. North Korea will respond to threats and to provocative actions against them, and we've seen that in the past. And in that country, millions of people are suffering. And if the cycle of rhetoric and the collision course between the West and North Korea continues, many more in North Korea and beyond will suffer as well. Our coverage starts right now. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The situation in North Korea's grim. The country's leader, Kim Jong-un, is moving full speed ahead with nuclear weapons and missile programs that he claims will be used if North Korea is attacked by its enemies. U.S. President Donald Trump has warned Kim to behave and has dispatched U.S. warships to the region to demonstrate what will likely happen if he doesn't. But that's only half the story. The other half is the bleak, seemingly hopeless life that North Koreans live. What's it like? Grace Joe, a young woman who escaped, gave us a graphic accounting of the hard life that North Koreans live. Each time I... Well, if... I go back to the condition, I have to explain the uh, original dates why we escaped North Korea back in 1998. Um, it's because my grandmother, my bro- younger brothers, um, they all passed away because of starvation. So food situation was very bad. Um, my younger brother and I was were almost like a, 10 days starved straight. Uh, we only drank uh, cold water and uh, there's no meal we can find. The public farms, uh, we cannot find any small potatoes from the farm because other people, they already like found them. And um, the winter time, 
we can find like wood to burn and keep house warm. We don't have any food. We don't have any money, and there's no way we can make money either. Each time I well, if I go back to the condition, I have to explain the、uh, original dates why we escaped North Korea back in 1998.、Um, it's because my grandmother, my bro- younger brothers,、um, they all passed away because of starvation. So food situation was very bad. Um, my younger brother and I was were almost like、uh, ten days starved straight.、Uh, we only drank、uh, cold water, and、uh, there's no meal we can find. The public farms、uh, we cannot find any small potatoes from the farm because other people they already like found them, and、um, the. Winter time, we can find like wood to burn and keep house warm. We don't have any food. We don't have any money, and there's no way we can make money either. During that time in 1997, it's estimated that as many as 3.5 million of North Korea's 22 million people died of starvation. Now this came just three years. After U.S. President Bill Clinton hailed in 1994 a nuclear deal to shut down North Korea's program. Before I take your questions, I'd like to say just a word about the framework with North Korea that Ambassador Gallucci signed this morning. This is a good deal for the United States. North Korea will freeze and then dismantle its nuclear program. South Korea and our other allies will be better protected. The entire world will be safer as we slow the spread of nuclear weapons. South Korea, with support from Japan and other nations, will bear most of the cost of providing North Korea with fuel to make up for the nuclear energy it is losing, and they will pay for an alternative power system for North Korea that will allow them to produce electricity while making it much harder for them to produce nuclear weapons. The United States and international inspectors will carefully monitor North Korea. To make sure it keeps its commitments, only as it does so will North Korea fully join the community of nations. That did not work. So in 2002, U.S. President George W. Bush boldly called out North Korea. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. He called them a part of the now infamous axis of evil. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction. These regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. In any of these cases, the price of indifference would be catastrophic. After Bush left office, his successor Barack Obama tried something called strategic patience. We could obviously uh, uh, destroy North Korea with our arsenals, but aside from the humanitarian costs of that,、uh, they are right next door to our. 
vital ally, Republic of Korea. One of the things that we have been doing is spending a lot more time positioning our missile defense systems so that uh, even as we try to resolve the underlying problem of, of uh, nuclear development inside of North Korea, we're also uh, setting up a shield that uh, can at least block uh, the relatively low-level threats that they, uh, they're posing right now. That was April of 2016. And since that time, the U.S. and the world have recognized that North Korea's missile and nuclear programs are not low-level threats. In fact, North Korea has, in the minds of numerous nuclear experts, managed to build several nuclear devices and are in the process of miniaturizing them to fit on missiles. And experts believe now they've developed a missile that could likely reach the whole of the United States. So the scenario or standoff that unfolded on April 15th of 2017 was evidence. The U.S.-North Korea problem is coming to a head very quickly. Ambassador Joe Detrani, former U.S. mission manager for North Korea, spoke to us about what happened. Well, the weekend was very tense, JJ. Uh, we, uh, we had uh, uh, naval assets positioned, and the North Koreans were having a major celebration on the birth of uh, Kim Il-sung. A very tense period, and there was a sense that there would be a nuclear test at Punggye and or a missile launch uh, at this anniversary, which is typical for North Korea. When there's an anniversary, they do something like that. Our naval assets were deployed to the region, and the sense was that if North Korea launched a missile, and, uh, and seemingly uh, that uh, missile could be indeed an ICBM uh, directed towards the United States with an unknown uh, uh, nuclear warhead, or conventional warhead, or a simulated warhead, that there's a possibility of intercepting and taking that missile down. Uh, so it was a very uh, tense period over the weekend. It was indeed a very tense time. Uh, North Korea had threatened to possibly conduct a nuclear test or to launch a rocket. And there was some discussion about U.S. responses and that the U.S. might respond if they conducted a nuclear test. They opted not to do a nuclear test, but instead they launched a missile. And here in Washington, there's been a heck of a lot of talk about why that missile blew up shortly after it took off. And there were questions about whether or not the U.S. had actually employed cyber tactics to take out that rocket. What do you know about that? North Korea has been launching missiles, uh, JJ, certainly over the last five years. They've launched over 50 missiles. A number of them were successful. A good number of them failed. That's typical for missile launches. Uh, and, and indeed, the North Koreans and any, anyone else who's in that business of launching missiles will learn from their failed missile launches. And, and as we've seen, they've progressed to an intermediate-range ballistic missile, and now they're talking about uh, possibly launching an intercontinental ballistic missile. So they've advanced with their missile technologies. Uh, I'm not aware of any uh, uh, program that was used over the weekend or what have you to take out uh, a North Korean missile using cyber technology. I just, I just don't have that insight. But the fact of the matter is uh, North Korea will persist. And, they'll, and as we've seen over the years, they've, in, they've uh, uh, increased their ability and their knowledge. And therefore, uh, their systems are that much more sophisticated 
uh, and uh, they will continue on that path. So the, even with the failed missile launches, they're making significant progress. But back to the question about cyber. You're in the U.S. government. Do you know if the U.S. has the capability to launch a cyber attack on a North Korean rocket? I'm just not aware that the uh, U.S. Uh, has used any, any cyber to take out any North Korean missile launch. Uh, obviously, the uh, U.S. and any other government would look at all capabilities to protect the, its country and its people. Uh, but I'm not familiar with any particular uh, system per se. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. I did note that you said you're not aware that the U.S. has used. And you didn't answer whether or not the U.S. has the capability. And I understand that. That's probably classified and you probably don't want to go there. I understand that. Now, to the to the future. The U.S. essentially has posed a threat to North Korea. Will North Korea respond to that threat? You know, North Korea seldom bluffs when they're talking about a missile launch or a nuclear test. Uh, usually when they say they're going to do it, they do it. I, I do not believe they're talking about uh, unilaterally uh, uh, using a nuclear weapon to attack uh, one of our allies in the region, or indeed the United States. I think many of us who have looked at North Korea over the years knows, or at least we assessed, assessed with high confidence that they're not suicidal. So for them to unilaterally do something like that, no, I just don't see it. Now, North Korea will respond to, uh, to threats and to, uh, uh, if you will, provocative actions against them. They, uh, and we've seen that uh, in the past. When they perceived the threat, they did something on the northern limit line, usually on the sea. We saw them take down the Chungan in 2010 with 47 South Korean sailors killed in the process. So North Korea does respond, and they have the artillery to uh, respond and go into Seoul and, and cause a great horrific damage. There's no question about that. But uh, short of, of them seeing something that's an imminent threat to them, I just do not see North Korea unilaterally uh, striking out, uh, whether it's using conventional or, uh, indeed, nuclear capability. I I just don't see that. So are they bluffing? I don't think North Korea bluffs per se, but they they do use uh, fanciful language. And they, uh, you know, the YouTubes of taking out New York and Washington, they do uh, participate in... uh, hyperbole, and, and, and so forth. So not a bluff, but they tend to uh, go to extremes with their rhetoric. So it's pretty clear the U.S. cannot launch a strike on a nuclear test because of the possibility for radiation leaks, etc. But missile strikes uh, on missile sites, yes. How far will the U.S. go to deter North Korea? Well, everything has to be proportional. If, 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 there, is a, if there is a view an assessment that there's an imminent threat emanating from North Korea. Uh, let's just say an ICBM launch coming out of North Korea, an interna- intercontinental ballistic missile, and something of a, pre, uh, a preemptive uh, uh, strike is, is uh, affected, whether it's uh, on, on soil or whether it's in, in, in flight. I think that any country would agree that that's, uh, that's uh, authorized and, and the responsibility of any government to protect its citizens and, and so forth. So preemptive in that nature when there's an imminent threat, I think uh, people understand that. And I think the North Koreans understand that. 
that if they do something as provocative as that, that will be viewed as an imminent threat to a country like the United States, they should expect a response. And if they're going to respond to that, uh, uh, if you will, action on the part, in this case, let's say the U.S., of something of a preemptive nature, if they should respond to that, it should be proportional, and they have to be very realistic on, on, uh, on why that action took place. And I think they would be very cautious in, in their response. So uh, everything is proportional, JJ. It depends on what they're doing and the view, the perception as to how much of a threat it is to our allies and certainly to the United States on what, in fact, they're doing. And, and then uh, the, the Pyongyang government and Kim Jong-un is going to have to factor that in if, indeed, he does respond. And knowing that, uh, this could escalate and it could escalate quickly. And knowing that the U.S. has, you know, you know overwhelming capabilities, I, I, I would think that the leadership in Pyongyang would be very prudent in, in any response to a U.S. action to protect the United States or its allies. That's Ambassador Joe Detrani, former head of the U.S. National Counterproliferation Center and former U.S. mission manager for North Korea. Ambassador, thanks very much for your time. Okay, JJ. So, now that we know what happened and have some idea what the U.S. is planning to do, what's Kim Jong-un thinking? And what's his objective? For that, we pivot to Greg Scarlatiu, Executive Director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Greg, if the Trump administration, as it said it would, turns up the volume, that's their phrase, on North Korea, what does that mean? And how will North Korea respond? Turning up the heat on North Korea can mean several different things. And basically, it involves the effective application of our elements of national power. Surely, the application of American economic power is one of these factors. We have had a sanctions regime in place pursuant to UN Security Council resolutions aimed to prevent the development and proliferation of North Korean ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons by basically um, restricting, for example, the the access, uh, severing the access of uh, the elites in charge of this proliferation uh, to luxury goods from the outside world. So in other words, the sanctions regime uh, based on UN uh, Security Council resolutions has aimed to, number one, prevent the development and proliferation of North Korean nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. Number two, punish the elites in charge of this development and proliferation by severing their access to luxury goods imported from the outside world. Of course, to this, we have added our own North Korea Policy and Sanctions Enforcement Act, which for the first time ever, includes crimes against humanity and human rights violations, and not only nukes and missiles, in the type of behavior that is to be subjected to the sanctions, if turning up the heat involves 
more effective implementation of these sanctions, the North Koreans will take notice. Because we do know that this regime, the regime of the Kim family, cares, ultimately cares about its fundamental strategic objective, which is its own survival. They do care about their survival, their legitimacy, and of course, they do care about their pocketbook because hard currency is what enables them to develop the nuclear and missile programs, which they see as essential to staying in power, to ensuring that North Korea is uninvadable, and hard currency earnings from their overseas operations also enable the regime to earn the resources it needs in order to keep the key elites happy. What about the other side of this, Greg? What happens if North Korea gets angry about this? UN security sanctions are a very serious matter. If sanctions do not work, then what comes next? So the effective implementation of these sanctions that are already on the books is extraordinarily important. The sanctions, whether you're talking about the UN Security Council sanctions or the sanctions pursuant to our own US-North Korea Policy and Sanctions Enforcement Act, have been drafted carefully. Uh, surely, uh, ordinary North Koreans are not targeted by these sanctions. Actually, uh, those who drafted the U.S.-North Korea Policy and Sanctions Enforcement Act actually went through great pains to ensure that there are humanitarian exceptions and that the civilian population of North Korea is not targeted and that the people of North Korea do not suffer. Once again, economic power is a very important element of our national power. Of course, military power is another extraordinarily important element, and thus our commitment to a strong U.S.-South Korea alliance, to a strong U.S.-Japan alliance, to strong and effective trilateral coordination amongst the United States, the Republic of Korea, South Korea, and Japan, will continue to be the bedrock of peace, prosperity, freedom, democracy in Northeast Asia, in the Asia-Pacific, and beyond. We've heard the story from Grace Joe, and you know Grace Joe personally. You know about the hardship that people in North Korea suffer from. What if the leadership in North Korea, Kim Jong-un and his henchmen and women, take these sanctions and turn them on the people that are already suffering inside North Korea? The average people of North Korea are already having an extraordinarily tough time. Uh, for a very simple reason. The Kim family regime is simply concerned about its own survival. If you look at other cases around the world, the survival of the state is generally seen as more important than the survival of the regime. 
But in North Korea, the Kim family regime places its own survival above everything else. This is a regime that is investing uh, very significant amounts of money and resources into its nuclear and ballistic missile program, while one-third of North Korean children suffer from malnutrition, while its own population still suffers from severe nutritional deficiencies. How far do you think North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, would go if provoked? If he felt as though the West, the U.S. primarily, was twisting his arm, how far do you think he would go to lash out or to retaliate? The point of the sanctions is to change the behavior of the North Korean regime. Uh, the the North Korean regime uh, might be angry, it might be calm, but what we need to keep in mind is the fundamental strategic objectives of this regime, and survival is surely the most important of these objectives. We have an elaborate sanctions regime in place. We have experienced issues with the effective implementation of the sanctions regime. Now, when the the UN Security Council issues resolutions that aim to implement such sanctions, the UN Security Council is not concerned about whether rogue regimes are angry. The UN Security Council is concerned about ensuring peace and security. North Korea's nuclear and missile program is a threat to regional and international peace and security. The whole point of a sanctions regime is its effective implementation. The goal of the sanctions regime is to affect the behavior of the North Korean regime, and if it's survival that it cares so much about, basically present this regime with a clear choice. Is it going to be survival? Is it going to be your nuclear weapons and missiles? You cannot have both. Final thoughts on this issue, Greg? We have come to a juncture where we should stop talking just about North Korean nukes and missiles. We have come to a much better understanding of the modus operandi of the Kim regime. And we understand that This regime's human rights violations and crimes against humanity are not an obstacle to addressing the other issues. Basically, these human rights violations, crimes against humanity, committed throughout North Korea and especially at its five political prison camps where 120,000 men, women and children are held, These very human rights violations are at the very core of the regime's modus operandi. In order to change the behavior of the regime in other respects, in particular on the hard political security military issues, nukes and missiles, we must address the very nature of that regime. And we can do that only by paying sufficient attention 
to the human rights conundrum in North Korea. Greg Scarlatiu, Executive Director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Greg, as always, thanks so much. JJ, the pleasure is mine as always. In the last few weeks, we've heard about a number of possible solutions to the problem in North Korea, including sanctions, warships, missile strikes and launches, even regime change. But at the end of the day, the unpredictability of Kim Jong-un and the regime has bedeviled the West for more than 20 years, and it doesn't look as though it's about to change anytime soon. So the world will have to stay tuned. We will certainly do that. And in the meantime, coming up in our next program. And their big concern, I, I was in Russia not too long ago, I mean, a little over a year ago now. That's Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor with the Trump administration. This never-before-broadcast interview took place during the lost year, 2015, after he was let go at DIA and before he joined the Trump administration. And looking back at this interview, it seems to put some things into perspective, including his relationship with Russia. What we have to be very careful of, and this is not necessarily just their military forces, we have to understand what is, what are the intentions behind what uh, President Putin is actually trying to achieve. Flynn resigned his position after it became clear that he had discussed U.S. sanctions on Russia with Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador to the U.S., before the Trump inauguration on January 20th. He'd been caught up in intelligence collection on Kislyak. The bottom line is, as Flynn left the administration, there were questions about his relationship with the Russian government. This interview will possibly help us understand what took place. That's coming up on our next episode of Target USA. Thank you for joining us and please follow us on Twitter at TUSA. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And let me know what you think. Send an email to me at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's one word, the letter J and the color green at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. 